welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longen. COVID-19 is new, but this week's guest has been studying pandemics and respiratory infectious diseases for years. Jennifer Rudd is a CAS biology graduate who went on to earn two more degrees at OSU's College of Veterinary Medicine, where she's now a faculty member. After completing her Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, she practiced for years before returning to OSU to pursue a doctorate in respiratory infectious diseases. Her research focuses on the excessive immune response seen with pandemic viral pneumonias and ways to improve clinical outcomes through targeting the immune response. We talk about the best way to end this pandemic, what makes COVID-19 unique, and why you should put a veterinarian on your zombie apocalypse team. So you have some expertise in this area, and I know, of course, COVID-19 is brand new. There aren't that many people who have any expertise, but if somebody sees, oh, he's talking to a veterinarian about COVID-19, what, what are your credentials? Yeah, that's a good question. So I agree that when the general public is going to see who's going to talk about COVID-19, veterinarian may not be the first thing that pops to the top of that list. But for me specifically, not only am I a veterinarian, I do, of course, talking with you with College of Arts and Sciences, I have a bachelor's in biomedical sciences, and then went on, did my veterinary degree and practiced for a while before coming back and doing my PhD. And my PhD is actually in influenza pandemics and looking at the way that our immune system responds to those types of severe respiratory infections and pneumonia and ways that those are complicated by other organisms such as bacteria as well. And so while that's not exactly COVID-19, influenza in a lot of ways is similar in these pandemic type settings. And so I do have background in the human disease aspect of pandemics. I also am now on faculty at the College of Veterinary Medicine. I teach veterinary infectious diseases to the second year students here, and I am board certified in veterinary microbiology as well. So this is kind of an unfair question, but when you have the credentials that you do, and then something comes up that's sort of right in your wheelhouse, I know you don't want a pandemic and people dying, but as a researcher, is this an exciting time for you? Oh, well, an exciting can be good or bad, right? (laughs) (laughs) This is a really difficult time. There is a lot of potential in research and it's moving very, very quickly. And so it's an anxious time being in a pandemic, but we are seeing a lot of research coming out and people with my types of background, we have several people here in vet med with a lot of background in research in respiratory disease. And this is a time where we can sort of step up to the plate and say, hey, we've been looking at things like this for a while now. And so we don't need to recreate a wheel. We can take our skill sets and our backgrounds and we can apply them in this setting and get a result faster than maybe some other places would. And so in that aspect, yeah, it's an exciting time for research. But at the same time, we don't want to be here and we all want this to be over. And so the research is exciting because we're hoping that we can move things along fast enough to see this end, hopefully sooner rather than later. I think we're all ready for this to be over. You and I have known each other for a long time, going back to when you were a uh, high school cross-country runner. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then I I worked with your husband at the OSU Foundation. Uh Uh-huh. 
In fact, I started working with him before I realized you two were married, which was interesting. But uh, anyway, so I've known you for a while, and it was because of that that I saw your Facebook posts. You've started a series of posts on Facebook about sort of questions about all of this and some answers, some yes. of your answers. One of the questions you put on there is one I think that probably a lot of our listeners have. You mentioned just now how veterinarians in some cases have done some of the research sort of leading up to this. But if somebody said, why would you all even be part of the conversation? This should just be sort of physicians and lab scientists, not somebody specifically in veterinary medicine. Why is that? That is a great question, and I love nothing more than talking about how wonderful my profession is. So thank you for asking me to share about that. Have you ever thought about who's going to be on your zombie apocalypse team? <laughs> uh, occasionally, I thought through that. <laughs> yes, yes, once in a while. I don't believe at all in the concept of the zombie apocalypse, but True. it's a fun mental exercise. Yes. Yeah. No, me neither, obviously. But I love to sit there and think about, okay, who would make the cut and who am I leaving behind, right? And so the reason I bring that up is because when we think about veterinarians, I would strongly suggest that we all need them on our zombie apocalypse team. <laughs> the reason for that is we're kind of a jack of all trades. When we graduate with a DVM, not only are we internists, but we're surgeons, we're criticalists, we're public health advocates right off the bat. We understand herd health, which is huge when we talk about pandemics and outbreaks. People don't like to think of themselves as a herd because we're not livestock. I get that. But the concept of outbreaks has really stemmed in herd health. And that is what we do on a daily basis. And so we are highly trained in biosecurity, in herd health approaches, in prevention of disease, in management of outbreaks, in a variety of infectious diseases and vaccine development and use and the pros and cons that go with that. And so we're not quite as specialized. In most cases, we're not nearly as specialized as people within human medicine are. And I'm not saying that to downplay physicians and people in the human medical field right now, because clearly they're frontline and essential to what we're trying to do. What I'm really just saying is that there are things that we can provide that we've already figured out and mastered in our profession that can essentially give us a seat at that table to hopefully contribute and see some solutions a little bit quicker just by bringing in that outside perspective. So that's really where I see veterinarians play in. When we talk about coronaviruses, we're already experts on coronaviruses. So, you know, coronavirus outbreaks in people, there's, I think, about seven now, I'm not a human medical expert. I think there's about seven coronaviruses that humans can get, three of which have caused some, some outbreaks, COVID-19 being the biggest global pandemic. But we saw SARS back in the early 2000s. We've seen MERS. That's another coronavirus. But as veterinarians, we deal with coronaviruses. We've been dealing with them for decades. We have multiple coronaviruses in pigs. We see it in, in your dogs and cats. We see all sorts of issues with coronaviruses, cattle. So you name it, these viruses are very much in our wheelhouses and we are used to dealing with them and to some of the difficulties in tackling those sorts of viruses. I also just wanna point out how much veterinarians are already playing a role in the pandemic. And so, for example, here at OSU, 
we have an Oklahoma animal disease diagnostic lab here. And our diagnostic lab, obviously by its name, is a veterinary diagnostic lab. It is the only one in the state that is accredited at this level. When this pandemic, very before it was even a deal for most of us, back in probably late February, where we knew it was a deal elsewhere, but we were still figuring out just how this was going to affect the U.S., our diagnostic lab, veterinarians at the diagnostic lab looked at what they could do. They said, you know what? We already tackle coronaviruses. We have all of the equipment to run high quantities of samples within a short time frame. We have technicians that are skilled and trained at doing this. And yes, we haven't seen COVID-19 before, but the skill set, running a PCR on a herd of people, essentially, is a skill that we have been doing for a long time. And so we quickly went through the process to get accredited to be able to also handle these sorts of humans, human samples. And now our animal disease diagnostic lab through OSU Medicine and through that, we call it a CLIP accreditation to be able to handle those human samples. We now take on about, I think about a third of the testing in the state of Oklahoma. So that's veterinarians. That's veterinarians that are churning those out. They can run up to 2000 tests in one day simply because of that skill set we bring to the table. We also here at the College of Veterinary Medicine, we have an epidemiologist here who has been instrumental in playing a role in advising for our governmental officials right here in Oklahoma on projections and handling of the virus. And so we already have a seat at that table for sure. So a couple times there you mentioned herds, you referred to people as herds. And, and I know that leads me to think of the, a term we keep hearing a lot lately, and most people probably had not heard it before recently, herd immunity. Yeah. What, what is herd immunity? Yeah, isn't it interesting how we all have a completely different vocabulary than we did, you know, yeah. six months ago, how we can talk about pandemics and herd immunity and contact tracing, and there's all sorts of things that we've now learned as a general public. So let's take it one step back from herd immunity. And before anything else, I think it's important to understand that the goal of moving out of a pandemic, so moving below a pandemic threshold, is to essentially create some kind of barrier between people who have no immunity to the virus and people who are infected with the virus. And there's a variety of ways to do that, but ultimately herd immunity is what we really need to try and achieve to be able to bring that pandemic down to a manageable level. So that doesn't even mean that it's completely gone. It just means it can circulate at a level that is more in line with our seasonal type viruses like flu, even colds, some things like that. So herd immunity can be achieved in two different ways. And that's another thing that I think a lot of people miss is they think of herd immunity as, well, let's just all go out and risk ourselves to get infected. Maybe we can get to that 70 to 90% have been infected and exposed threshold, and then this will just be over. And I hear that sentiment a lot. Everyone wants this to be over. I get that. But there is another way to, to achieve herd immunity too, and that is through vaccination. So when I say herd immunity, I mean that we get to a significant percentage of the population that has some kind of immune protection to that virus. 
whether that is through natural infection and exposure or through vaccination, both of those factors are going to play a role in achieving herd immunity. The goal should be vaccination, right? Because the vaccine hopefully is going to be a low-risk, effective way to achieve immunity as opposed to being infected and then having a chance of dying from COVID. So in particular in our vulnerable populations, but that's what that herd immunity really means. And that's what we are working towards is being able to create that barrier between people who have naive immune systems, in particular our vulnerable populations and people who are infected and actually spreading that virus. And just to clarify, you're using naive to mean nobody's ever had it before. You're not talking about ignorance, right? Excuse me. Yes, that's a very technical science term. And occasionally I have to remind myself the vocabulary that I need to be careful. Naive simply means that they do not have any immune protection. Mm. So they've never been exposed or infected with the virus before. And so their immune system has never seen it before. Right. So when you hear the term naive, that's what that's referring to. Yeah, I just wouldn't want anybody to think you're insulting people. Yeah, that was, yeah. And I think in context, it's clear. I just want to make sure. And you you mentioned 70 to 90%. Yeah. And just to make sure that we've really hit that point, as I understand it, when you get to a certain level, the virus isn't spreading because it's just not finding people to spread to, right? It's not finding this person who then passes it to another person who passes it to another. It's just sort of brick walls everywhere. Exactly. Imagine that you have 10 people, nine of which are protected, whether by vaccination or maybe they've been exposed before and had an infection, maybe asymptomatic, but they have some level of protection. And now you have a person that enters into those 10 people who is actually infected with COVID and shedding virus. Nine of those 10 people are protected from that infection. And so you just see a greatly decreased chance of that infection spreading from that one person who is infected. We don't really know yet, as far as I'm aware, we don't know yet what that percentage of people is going to need to be. It depends largely on the specific region we're talking about. So when I talk about 90% herd immunity, I'm really talking about places where we're seeing hotspots of pandemic. We're not going to have 90% herd immunity everywhere. Mm. But if we can have a 90% herd immunity in areas that are really struggling, we can get this virus back under control. And so that's sort of our goal is moving towards that in the safest way that we know how. Let me ask you a non-COVID question here. When we're talking about herd immunity, and I want to ask you about vaccines in just a second, and you did Mm -hmm. reference those, but let's say everybody goes out and gets a flu shot, or at least everybody who can. We Mm -hmm. see the flu every year. People get it every year, Mm -hmm. not one person over and over, but the flu is always around. How is the flu always around? I, I know it mutates, but how does it come back and come back and come back annually? This is a great question because one of our hot topics that I see is just, well, how is influenza different from COVID-19 as well? Influenza is its own beast. 
And in all honesty, if we're going to break down viruses here and talk about coronavirus versus influenza, influenza is kind of the bad boy long term. Mm. <laughs> this virus is not, neither virus is likely to go anywhere. But long term, influenza has a much greater potential of causing repeated pandemics in the future as well. And that's largely because of the nature of that virus itself. And so there are particular aspects of the genetic material within that virus that allow it to very rapidly mutate over time. And it does this nonstop. It's constantly mutating. And so what that does is we may see, we may even get flu one season, but by the time it comes around the next season, it has changed enough that our immune system may not recognize it from the last season. And if we don't recognize it, now we have a whole new level of outbreak all over again. And influenza is always going to be that way. And so even when we talk about vaccines and flu, you know, when we have a vaccine that's say 60% effective, that's a good year, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of that is because we're trying our best to predict what that influenza virus is going to do because we don't actually really know how it's going to randomly mutate and which mutation is going to stick and, and move it into the next season. And so we'll see bad years of flu and good years of flu based on how well we predict some of those changes that are taking place. So that's really why influenza is different and why it's not going anywhere as we move into the future with that one. And that's also why we have to get a flu shot every year, right? And not just, yes. it's not like one of those vaccines you get once and it's good forever. Yeah, it's but, because of how quickly it changes. But I know they're working on that, like yeah. they broadly. Um, yeah, a lot do, of people. Do you know if there's been any progress? Uh, and of course, we're off of COVID for a moment, but do mm -hmm. you know, are, are we getting close or closer to having that? You go get this shot and you won't get the flu for the rest of your life. Yes. Yes, we are getting closer. I, you know, if you'd asked me pre-COVID, I would have said probably within the next decade or mm. so, we will have a vaccine for flu that is what we consider a universal mm. vaccine. So essentially trying to find a protein or a part of that influenza that doesn't change mm. from year to year, but still stimulates our immune system enough to give us protective immunity every year. And so that's our goal. There's a lot of labs that are working towards that because that will be huge. Think of how many people die from influenza every year. If we could get a universal, safe, effective, universal vaccine where you might take it once every 10 years or once in a lifetime, that's going to be a huge medical breakthrough. I wonder with how quickly vaccines are being developed in warp speed, really, for COVID right now, if that won't actually play a factor in speeding up our influenza vaccine process as well. I think there are a lot of amazing things being done in vaccinology research at this very moment that are going to positively affect many other infectious diseases moving forward as well. And I assume it's too early in the process. We don't even have a COVID vaccine yet. But is there any indication of whether this vaccine would be an annual or a universal or how that would work once they have it? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I would say we don't have a COVID vaccine available to the general public yet. I actually do think the chances are pretty good that that vaccine exists right now. The vaccine research that has come out in particular over the last couple of weeks, if mm -hmm. anyone has been following that, 
we have probably about three different, at least three different types of vaccines that are showing really promising results. I suspect that at least one of those is going to make it through the rest of the phases of trials and actually be available to the general public. So I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about our vaccine approach. And in all honesty, if you'd asked me three weeks ago, I probably would have had a different answer. Mm-hmm. The vaccine research is looking great. Our goal with vaccine development is really that when you get a vaccine, the immunity you get from it is even better than you would if you were infected with the virus itself. Mm-hmm. And so that is our goal. And it is looking like that is what we're seeing from these vaccines that are coming through. Now, several of these vaccines have only been tested in maybe a thousand people. And we have to reach about 30,000 people before we can say that they are safe and effective and actually make them available to our vulnerable populations likely first and then to everyone shortly after. Now, I also know that we realize the need for a vaccine worldwide. And so these companies whose research is really promising, they are already stockpiling these vaccines. And so usually a company waits until you get through all Mm -hmm. of your phases of clinical trials before they're going to put significant money into production of vaccines but they're willing to take this risk. And so what they're risking is, let's say they stockpile it all and then something doesn't go well, now they're out a whole lot of money. But if these vaccines make it through our phase two trials and move on, then when it, as soon as they're cleared, we should have a lot of vaccine available on that very day to start handing out. And hopefully people will take it (laughs) and get the vaccine. That's a whole other discussion that probably needs to be had, but this should be available very soon. And so I do, I think it's realistic that there will be a vaccine in early 2021 that we will start to start to have some access to. That was going to be my next question. So if we have, if we already have the vaccine, we're not certain yet, right? But Mm -hmm. if we already have the the vaccine, you think it would be maybe early 2021 that? I think it's possible. You know, sometimes I'm accused of being an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) That's a terrible characteristic. So it's so terrible. And in science, you're supposed to be a skeptic, right? And Mm. I am. I'm an optimistic skeptic. Is Mm. that a thing? Can that be a thing? (laughs) Well, it's it's the opposite of a a cynic, right? Exactly. I like to say I'm a realist. So... (laughs) But yeah, I I honestly, I do think that it is realistic that we will have a vaccine available in spring of 2021. Great. So if we have, when we have an effective vaccine, you're saying we give it to our vulnerable population first, makes perfect sense. The goal is still to get to herd immunity. Mm -hmm. Is that possible if people are refusing to take the vaccine? Or I mean, (laughs) some people will refuse, but do, yeah. do we know like what the what the tipping point is? Yeah, you know, in areas that are having hotspot outbreaks, we will eventually achieve herd immunity mm. through some means, right? And so, if we have enough people who refuse to take the vaccine or ha- or get the vaccine, then that herd immunity will likely be achieved through infection exposure and infection. So the obvious, very clear downside with that is that there will more than likely be people who die through that route, in particular when we talk about the elderly 
diabetic populations, people with cardiovascular disease, we may have, COVID may not have a, the highest mortality rate, but in certain populations, the mortality rate is quite high, very high. And so that's where we're going to see a major downside of a big anti-vax push. So my hope is that as scientists, we can better communicate the process, the safety, the testing that goes into these, the efficacy, and really try to communicate that. Now, that being said, I think there are people who aren't going to get the vaccine no matter what. And so at some point, those of us who do get the vaccine will be getting it to protect those people as well. So they may not agree. They may have decided they will never get a vaccine, but it is still my part as part of humanity to give myself that protection, not just for me and my family, but also so I can protect other people who may not make the same choices as me. And that's sort of similar to the flu shot, right? Yes. I mean, I, I go and get the flu shot every year. The flu, which I've had, is very unlikely to kill me. But if I get it and spread it to others, there are people in my life that the yeah. flu would be an awful thing for them. So until we get a vaccine, it seems to me we're in a position where we, as much as we can, we want to wipe out this virus. We kind of have the choice right now of get the vaccine when it's ready, mm -hmm. until it's ready. We do everything we can not to spread the disease, which is where things like social distancing and what's become a hot button issue, masks come in. Who would have um, thought a piece of cloth would be so divisive? <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about masks. First of all, how effective are they? And, and second of all, are there any issues with wearing them? I think where a lot of the controversy comes from is that our messaging about masks has changed dramatically if you look at February, March versus now. And what people need to remember is they're seeing research and various needs happen in real time as opposed to seeing just the end result of these things. We're all sort of living in it together, but we don't all have the background to fully comprehend what is happening at that very moment. In March, when there was a push to maybe not wear masks, just if you're out and about and not in an essential field, we were having a significant issue with shortage of what we call PPE, which is the protective equipment that our nurses and our doctors and our lab technicians all need to keep them safe from actually handling positive infected samples. And in order to protect that supply, and because we didn't yet know the full weight of, for example, asymptomatic carriers, transmission, the high transmissibility, and even the routes of transmission of the virus, all of that was still being figured out, we didn't emphasize wearing masks outside of those essential frontline worker roles. We know a whole lot more now than we did then. For example, we know that transmission of the virus is primarily through respiratory droplets. So that could be, of course, sneezing, coughing, two huge ways of transmitting the virus, but that's also through shouting, singing, talking loudly. Anytime anyone spits a little when they speak, those are respiratory droplets. And if you are infected with the virus, there will be a lot of viral particles in those droplets. So when we put a cloth face mask on, it's not that the pore size in that cloth is small enough to truly filter a virus. Viruses are tiny, tiny little particles, much, much smaller than that pore size will be. But it will catch those respiratory droplets. 
And when it does that, it's going to stop those viral particles from spreading as efficiently as they would otherwise. So that's the main reason we wear those is to really cut back on that primary route of transmission, which is through those respiratory droplets. You know, another thing people bring up is that they may not want to wear a mask because it makes them feel suffocated or makes them feel like they're having a lot of difficulty breathing. And I get that in particular in Oklahoma, what is it like 100 degrees and humid (laughs) at all times? No one really wants to, you know, tie a piece of cloth over their face when it's 100 degrees outside and incredibly humid. We do know there have been studies done long before COVID outbreak, we do know that cloth masks and surgical masks do not decrease oxygen levels in the blood. So when we talk about people who have difficulty, feel like they have difficulty breathing with a mask on, what they're probably feeling has more to do with the effort they're putting into breathing. And so anytime we breathe with the mask on, we're breathing through a filter, right? Isn't that the point? Is to Mm. pass air through a filter. And so you're not actually lowering your oxygen levels, but you're having to work a little bit harder to get each of those breaths. And if that's something you're not used to, it takes a little bit of getting used to that. And so in those kind of cases, I would recommend that people try wearing their mask for short periods of time, even at home in their air conditioning, just to get used to what that effort is and to convince themselves that maybe that they're just feeling a little bit of panic because of that increased effort that they're putting into breathing. So there are ways we can try and essentially desensitize or get you, you know, for us to get used to wearing those sorts of things. In the medical profession, we wear masks all the time. And so this really hasn't been a big adjustment for me, but I can completely understand that it is a big adjustment for a lot of other people. And so trying to give yourself time to get used to it is important. That goes for kids too. So moving into the school year, a lot of our kids are going to be wearing masks. So I would suggest maybe don't wait until the first day of school to put your kid in a mask. Now's probably the time to let them see you wear a mask. Let them wear it at home. Help them pick it out. Pick out the one they want. Make it something that they can get used to it before their teacher has to be the one to get them used to it. So as parents, we can all help out with that as well. I want to ask you about kids, but first let me ask something that I have been seeing come up recently is labeling this an airborne disease. And I understand that's a little bit different than droplets. What, what is the difference there? So there are two ways that the virus can be transmitted through air. It can be transmitted through droplets, which are just going to be, you know, actual moisture droplets that hold these virus particles together, or we can do what we call aerosols. And so that's actually just individual virus particles that leave that are, don't have an associated droplet with them. Respiratory droplets are still the main route of transmission. There's a lot of research looking into how aerosols may also be playing a role. A virus that is aerosolized is not going to last as long or be infective for as long as one that is in a respiratory droplet. And so that's one of the things we're looking at. Either way, as far as it goes for us, we should just assume that both are routes of transmission, right? And so trying to block viruses, trying to not cough and sneeze on other people, not shout, that sort of thing are all going to play a role in both aerosols and respiratory droplets. 
So the difference in that case would be the difference between I sneezed on you and you got sick versus the air conditioning, yeah, right? I breathed, I breathed on you. So if it is spread uh, airborne, you said it doesn't last as long and that makes perfect sense, but that also means you could expose more people potentially, right? Because oh, yeah. somebody could walk, I think somebody could walk through a room and somebody else could walk through the same room and mm-hmm. get it that way. Certainly, yeah. In particular, if we don't have social distancing or masks in place, then our chances go up much higher. The other thing to consider is indoor versus outdoor. And Mm. so a lot of these, when we contact trace these pockets of outbreak or infection transmission, a lot of these are going to go back to indoor spaces. And so where you have, say, air conditioning running that is essentially circulating those virus particles throughout the room, within an enclosed space. And so those are all going to be risk factors that increase your chances of getting COVID. Being inside, not keeping a distance, being in one place for too long, not wearing a mask, those are all risk factors that, and in all honesty, those are all things we can control, right? Mm. We can't control vaccine research. Most of us are not actually in the lab Mm. researching vaccine development But there are things that we can do to try and better control a pandemic while we wait for those other things to happen. And limiting our time indoors as best possible, keeping our distance, wearing masks, those are all things that we can do to actually slow the pandemic. And one concept that I think probably most of us not in the field had not given a lot of thought to until recently is this idea, I don't even know the right terminology, but basically you have to be exposed to a certain amount in Mm -hmm. a certain amount of time, right? It's not like one random virus is in the air and you get that and suddenly you're sick. So we call that like dose dependent, you know, where the infective dose matters. A small caveat with that is that the infective dose is going to be different depending on who you are. So a lot Mm -hmm. of people are immunocompromised and may not need the same infective dose that someone else does. So example, if I was exposed to, you know, let's say a thousand virus particles, I may not have any sign of disease. I may not even get an infection from that. I may have an exposure and never actually have a sign. But let's say someone who is diabetic and elderly is exposed to that exact same amount, they could end up with severe disease from that. So you have to keep that in mind is that our populations, we have very different responses to those doses. But yes, this is one of those viruses that the more you're exposed to, the greater chance you have of getting sick from that. And so that's part of when we talk about the distancing and the masks. A lot of that is not saying that we're not going to ever be exposed to a virus particle. In all honesty, we probably all have Mm. (laughs) at some point. But have we been exposed to, to enough of it to be infected? Well, if we're putting those control measures in place, one of our goals is to not meet that threshold and to not be exposed to the number of particles to actually be infected and get sick from COVID. So then to oversimplify it, is it like if, if your immune system is your, your army, it's a matter mm-hmm. of whether one of the enemy troops shows up versus 100,000, right? Because if one shows up, you can take them out pretty easily. Yeah, one little virus particle is, is not going to be a big deal for us to overcome, even mm-hmm. with a naive immune system. We can do that. One of the big problems we're seeing with severe COVID is actually the excessive immune response that we have. And so when we get infected with a higher number 
of viral particles, our immune system has this exaggerated response to that. And in these cases of fatal COVID that we see, these really severe hospitalized on a ventilator case, a lot of the damage that is causing that disease is actually from ourselves. It's from our own immune system's response to that viral infection. They're working their best to get rid of it, but they're doing it pretty indiscriminately. And so when they try and target the virus, they're also targeting your own tissues that are in your lungs and in your airways and damaging them as well. And so we see this severe hyperinflammatory response with that that's causing a lot of that severe disease that we see with COVID. And you mentioned children in school earlier. I know you have two children. I have two children and my wife's kindergarten teacher. So there has been a lot of discussion in our household over the last couple of months about the return to school and the ins and outs of that. Do you have thoughts? Do you want to say anything on, on that <laughs> whole sticky wicket. Right off the bat, like to take my scientist hat off, I want to say as a mom that we are making these tough decisions together. And regardless of what you decide, we need to be supporting each other, right, as parents. And so what we decide to do this fall is going to look different depending on our own personal situations and our family. And so we need to be very careful to not judge others for the decisions that they are making because we're not in their shoes. No one knows our children like we do. Nobody knows our family situations like we do. And so we're going to have this split. We're gonna have people that choose to do things virtually this fall because they, maybe because they can and because they have specific reasons. Maybe they have someone immunocompromised at home. Maybe that's just what they're more comfortable with. They have a stay at home parent. They have a way to make that happen. And then we're going to have people who are really, really anxious and nervous about sending their kids back to school, but have to do it anyway. And I think we need to all give each other a little bit of grace and support and encouragement as we move through that frontier together. From the put my scientist hat back on now. So pick the mom one away for a second. I don't multitask well. So <laughs> back on the scientist front, kids are not considered a vulnerable population. And so when we talk about severe COVID, it is very unlikely that we're going to see a ton of that in our children. Where we see severe COVID is going to be in primarily in elderly populations, which is a really, it's actually a pretty unique presentation for a viral disease because we tend to see it on both extreme ends, right? So when we see severe infections for influenza, for example, we see them really bad in kids and really bad in our elderly. And in the middle, it's kind of like we can handle it okay. COVID's not like that. We don't see a lot of severe disease in our kids. That being said, we do see some, right? And so we've all heard stories of children that do get severe COVID. And even occasionally we see fatality, really, really low rates, but we do see fatality. And so your chances, the mortality rate may be somewhere around 0.08% or so. We don't know for sure yet. We won't know till about a year or two down the road, probably really, but that's a really low number. But if that's your kid, that's 100%, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think we all feel that anxiety and we have to keep that in mind. So that's one aspect that we're all having to take in consideration as we think about school this fall. On the other side, we have to consider the other educators and populations of people that are involved in schooling our children. 
So the, the people that prepare their lunches, the guidance counselor, the principals, the teachers, whoever. Bus drivers. Bus drivers, absolutely. Janitors, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Whole, a whole lot of people. And that is where we're going to see more of our true vulnerable populations. And so we have to think about whether or not children are going to play a role in outbreaks among those populations as well. And what we suspect and what we kind of already know is that they do play some role. Children are infected with COVID often asymptomatic or mild, yes, and so in themselves it may not be severe, but they shed virus and they do transmit it to other people. And we are, we have confirmed that that is the case. And so what's most worrisome about this fall is in areas where we have pockets of, of hotspots of outbreaks, if we see COVID go through a school, of course we're worried about the kids. We're always going to be worried about kids, and we should be, but we also need to worry about the people the kids are in contact with and their risk of getting severe disease, hospitalization, or even death from that exposure. And so that's gonna be kind of a sticky situation moving through the fall. There are things we can do. I'm one of those that I agree with the Academy of Pediatrics has come out and said like, if at all possible, we need to find ways for kids to be in school. There's a lot of benefits for kids being in school. That's not going to be possible for a lot of people, and in particular regions, that's going to be a tougher decision than in other regions. But finding a balance of those who are going to be in person at school, what, what are some things that they can do to help protect themselves and others? And that's things like trying to wear masks, trying to create barriers, trying to create cohorts of children so that if we do have an outbreak, we don't have exposure among the whole school, but instead we can trace and monitor maybe just a small class and not have a lot of mixing between different classes. So I'm um, trying to do some teaching outdoors. Another great way when it's not 100 degrees, mm. another great way to try and limit the potential for that, trying to come up with really great ways to clean and disinfect in particular high areas with high contact. And so there's a lot of things we can do. And so from my end, I mean, I'm an educator at the college level, which is a whole different story. Mm -hmm. But when I think of my children, my kids are five and two. I'm trying to think over the next month, what are some things that I can do to prepare them for what school might look like in the fall? Mm -hmm. And those are things like, again, getting them used to masks, talking to them about showing kindness, <laughs> showing encouragement, respecting their teacher you know, maybe no hugging. <laughs> so things like that, that we can work on and prepare them for so that when they step into that classroom, they have more of a unified feel with the class as a whole. And they're all in it together. They're all wearing masks together. They're all distancing together. And they have it as their own family unit, as opposed to being the oddball out. You mentioned a second ago that this appears to be not as bad for children, but something like the flu is. Mm -hmm. Why is it different? Do, do we yeah. even know that? So we, we don't know yet. We have a lot of theories, I guess, on how, and they're, they're well-founded theories on how we, why we see these differences with COVID, on why kids don't seem to be as severely affected. It may be that they just don't have this excessive immune response to it. So there's something with that virus that doesn't trigger a child's immune response to the same extreme that we see in our older populations. 
It may have something to do with the fact that they have so many coronaviruses and other viruses circulating constantly anyway, that there's just not space for COVID mm -hmm. to take up and cause that same severe disease. So that could be a role. We're looking at differences in blood vessels in children versus adults and changes that happen over maturity and time that make older people more susceptible to this virus. It may be a difference in how many receptors for the virus are even expressed. We see a lot of instances of different infectious diseases, not just this one, where the receptor that the virus actually has to attach to may just not be as available at that age. Maybe they haven't made very many of them. Maybe the sites that they are, they just can't get to. So we don't really know. Long story short, we just don't know. We have a lot of theories behind it, but we do know the numbers and we, we do know that they are not a vulnerable population. But even with low mortalities and low severity, if enough children are infected, we are going to see cases of severe disease and potentially fatality as well that are associated. So mm. that's something we're going to have to be very cautious and cognizant of as we move through the fall. A minute ago, you mentioned asymptomatic. You said the word asymptomatic. I know we've also heard pre-symptomatic. Can you talk about those terms? Oh, so important. Yes, I'd love to. Asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic, neither of which are showing signs, right? That's what we mean by that. So these are people who are infected who are shedding virus, but do not have a clinical sign of the virus. So essentially someone who doesn't know they have it, right? So our typical clinical signs are going to be fever, maybe a cough, maybe some shortness of breath. If it's a pretty nasty, it might be achy, kind of feels like the flu. There is a large population. There are a large population of people who aren't going to have those clinical signs, potentially up to 40 to 45% of infections are going to be asymptomatic. So first, let's talk about what pre-symptomatic is. In about the 48 hours before you show clinical signs, you start shedding virus. So if you are going to be clinical for COVID, you will be shedding viruses about two days before you know you have it. That is one period of time where we see a lot of potential for outbreak and transmission because we're just not as careful if we don't have a sign. So we may break with a fever and we end up getting testing positive for COVID. And when we have to think back to contact tracing, we've got to take that to 48 hours before that fever broke and think of all of the people and places who we may have transmitted that virus to before we knew we had it. So that's what pre-symptomatic is. That's typical with a lot of viruses. There are a lot of viruses that we shed before we have a sign of it. Mm. Asymptomatic is a little different because in these people, we're probably not going to ever have a sign that we recognize as COVID. Maybe it's something really mild and we just think we have an allergy, <laughs> you know, especially in Oklahoma, right? We're all like, is it allergies or is it COVID? We're all in that <laughs> phase right now. <laughs> so I get that. Um, or maybe we don't even have that. But what we know about asymptomatic spread right now is that the virus load that's actually in our upper respiratory tract, so in our nose, in our nasal cavity, that virus load is about the same as in a symptomatic person. There's a lot of virus there. Now, the transmission risk is going to be a little lower, right? Because we're not sneezing and coughing. And so we're not shooting as many respiratory droplets that are full of those virus particles out as we would be if we had a fever and a cough and were symptomatic of the disease. But the virus load is still there and we are still shedding it. Asymptomatic people also don't have as robust of a 
of an immune response to that infection. And that's great for meaning we don't have a lot of clinical signs of the disease, but it's not great for viral shedding because if we don't have a robust immune response, we actually shed that virus for quite a bit longer. And so asymptomatic spread can be two weeks or more past your infection, you're still shedding virus into the environment. So asymptomatic carriers are so important when we think about COVID. Yes, it's true that they don't transmit as readily as someone who has a symptom. So if you, if all things are equal, if you put someone in a room who's never been exposed and you have one person who's symptomatic and one who's asymptomatic, their risk of getting it is going to be much higher from the symptomatic person, right? Because they're coughing, they're sneezing, there's all sorts of viruses going out in the air. Let's put that same person in a room with a symptomatic person, and now they're in a room with 50 or 100 asymptomatic people. Now their chances of getting COVID from an asymptomatic person are really high. And so asymptomatic spread is incredibly important because of how many people are shedding that virus into the environment and they don't even know they have it. And so they're less likely to be taking protective measures, quarantining, isolating, simply because they're just not aware of the risk that they, they pose to the people around them. And the potential, the possibility of someone being an asymptomatic carrier, not knowing they have it, is also why masks are so important, right? Because you put on the mask to protect other people, even though you feel fine, because you don't know that you're potentially spreading it. Absolutely. If you have a clinical sign, you shouldn't be wearing a mask because you shouldn't be out in public, right? (laughs) (laughs) So the mask wearing is for asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic, and those mild cases where you're convinced you have the allergies, but you're just not sure, right? But if you have a clinic, if you have a fever, if you, even if you have the sniffles, you should probably be quarantining at home until you are symptom-free or test or get tested and, and see if you're symptom-free or if you're positive or negative for COVID. But yeah, masks are a really crucial piece to prevention of asymptomatic spread. And asymptomatic spread is not unique to COVID, but it, from what I know, it seems to be higher from COVID than from, say, the flu. Yeah, it seems like it. You know, in particular, when we compare it to influenza, asymptomatic spread seems to be a bigger piece, a bigger problem (laughs) with COVID and a bigger piece of that outbreak and that pandemic. There are other instances where we have asymptomatic spread. In veterinary medicine, we deal with a lot of these where transmission often comes from animals who have no sign of disease. Mm And that's where we see these outbreaks coming from. But COVID stands out. The role of the asymptomatic carrier is something we figured out over pretty recently and has become increasingly important as we look at transmission and we contact trace. And maybe I'm wrong on this, but because of asymptomatic and presymptomatic spread, I feel like we keep hearing talk of, oh, there are going to be temperature checks at this, that, whatever thing. I feel like that is a good step. But that's not foolproof for this exact reason, right? Exactly. So I'm not going to say temperature checks aren't, couldn't be a piece of it. You know, there are a lot of places they're doing that. I'd like to think people would know if they had a fever or not, but maybe <laughs> they don't. But you're missing a lot, right? And so if you're relying only on that, that's going to give you a very false sense of security. 
for what you're dealing with. Temperature checks alone are not going to cut it. There are going to have to be other measures in place to actually stop the pandemic. This pandemic or this virus is zoonotic, which is another term I'm sure a lot of us had not really heard or knew what it meant before. Can you talk about that? And I'm sure that will lead into, let's talk about pets and animals broadly. So zoonosis is going to be any disease or infection that is naturally transmissible from a vertebrate animal to a human. There are a lot of zoonotic diseases that we deal with. When we talk about COVID specifically, this originated from an animal reservoir. So this was circulating as some kind of an animal virus. And we can talk about that too, if you want, or where it came from. Well, where it came from, I'm curious, but I, I think we seem to know that, but I'm curious how we know it came from an animal. So, so sequencing is how we really know. And so in particular, when we look at how this outbreak first started, we all know it first showed its head at Wuhan, right, mm-hmm. in China, and was associated with a kind of like a seafood type market, kind of wild animal seafood market in that area. And we were able to isolate the virus from that initial outbreak and sequence it back to seeing its similarities to bat coronaviruses in the area. It very likely originated from a bat coronavirus. Now, coronaviruses in general tend to be, we call them very species-specific viruses. Once they find a host, they like that host, and they really don't like to cause a lot of disease outside of that. But that doesn't mean they can't make jumps over time. And so what probably happened was this virus came from bats. It probably jumped to some sort of an intermediate host. So it had a mutation that made it readily infect maybe a pangolin, maybe stray dogs. We're still trying to figure that out. And that change and then transmission in those intermediate populations was enough to make it infect a human. And then once it jumped into the human population, we saw transmission improve and infectivity just skyrocket for human to human transmission. And so with COVID specifically, as we sequenced it, we thought it originated in Wuhan in that seafood market. Turns out it was probably actually circulating about a month before in that region. And what happened at the market was just an amplification of that virus. And so it was circulating in some way, probably not transmissibility, probably not with very high transmissibility, And then from that market setting, we amplified it. We saw this enhanced human-to-human transmission and the global outbreak began, right? And we know we didn't see that one coming, but that was where it all started. So sequencing has helped us figure all of that out. So if it came from animals, we're pretty confident. What are the odds that I could give it to my cat? Do we even know that? It is not easy to infect and another animal with COVID anymore. The human-human transmission is so, so readily occurs that we do not see it pass into other species very often, but we do see it. So we have probably about 25 instances of COVID-positive people who are in close contact with pets that have transmitted the virus to their pets. We don't actually have any established evidence yet that pets can give it to humans, Hmm. that it goes that way around. But we do know that people can give it to their pets. Tends to be asymptomatic to mild disease and they recover from it, but they can get it. And so we also have had a few instances of exotic 
animals, so tigers and lions, that have in the Bronx Zoo, I think is where that one came from. Um, there was a zookeeper that had COVID in New York City. And we believe that was the source for infection in these lions and tigers. And some of them had mild respiratory disease. All of them recovered. But we do know that cats in particular and some dogs have tested positive for COVID. This is not something that we see a lot of. I do not believe that our companion animals play any significant role in transmission of the disease. And again, we haven't yet seen an instance where an animal has passed it to a human. So this is more about protecting our pets than it is about protecting us in this regard. So if you test positive for COVID, you should isolate yourself from anything with a heartbeat just to mm. be safe. So pets, other people, you should be isolated from all of them just to protect them from COVID. And again, this is not unique to COVID, but that varies from disease to disease, I guess, how transmissible it is from human to animal and vice versa? Yes, yes. There are diseases that are zoonotic to a degree that we see transmission readily between animals and humans that doesn't go away, right? So when we talk about COVID, we see this jump from animals to humans, which makes it a zoonotic disease. But now what is driving the pandemic is human to human transmission. Mm. There are a lot of zoonotic diseases that those animals continue to play a big role in outbreaks and in transmission of disease. Zoonotic disease is huge for pandemics. So pandemics in general are on a rise. Our chances of having a pandemic are going up. That has a lot to do with the population of people, how you know we're an overpopulated world. We have close contact with animals. So zoonotic potential is really increased right now. Climate change has affected things. Uh, vector regions, when I talk about vector, I talk about insects that play a role in transmission of disease. Where climate change affects that, then we see outbreaks at a higher potential there as well. Just the fact that we don't have as many boundaries. We don't have to walk to get places. We can mm -hmm. fly, right? <laughs> so travel and transportation issues, those are all increasing our chances of pandemics. And of the emerging infectious diseases that we see right now, about 75% of them are zoonotic. And so you can bet that veterinarians and zoonotic disease, these are key to our pandemic response and control moving forward in our human population too. I mentioned earlier, you've been doing a series of Facebook posts, COVID, she wrote, I believe it's called. Is that yes. right? Yes. And you've had several posts about testing. Can you just talk a little bit about the testing process? You, you mentioned earlier the Oklahoma Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab. And I know my grandfather is in a nursing home, so he was tested routinely for COVID. And he said, yeah, they stick that thing up your nose and push till they hit your brain. He was not a fan of the test. But it came back negative. That was good to know. So the testing process, I believe, has changed a little bit. They've got some new methods. Our, our hallmark test, so basically our gold standard test right now is our PCR. And PCR is looking for bits of genetic material from the virus that it can amplify and then find and detect COVID specifically from that material. That's the bulk of the testing that we see done and for example at ODAL here at OSU. And again, that's the gold standard for our testing right now. 
we swab to get a sample from that. And so it's a swab that goes all the way back into the very back cavities of your nose and your larynx, which is more like the top of your throat. And it's 15 seconds on each side. So it does, it's pretty uncomfortable. I will say I didn't feel like it was painful, but it is uncomfortable. And as soon as they take the swab out, you sneeze everywhere. So that's a little bit, <laughs> that's a little bit odd too. But, but what they're looking for is they're trying to pick up enough viral particles to be able to detect if it's there or not. PCR testing is great testing actually. So it's got pretty good sensitivity and specificity, and it's certainly the best we've got going so far. It takes a few days of turnaround time to get those results. So typically, most of our labs do their best to get results out in two to three days. So that's from the moment they receive a sample to when they send them back out. Oklahoma has some struggles with infrastructure and what we had in place before the pandemic even started as far as data collection and processing and contact tracing go. We've been racing from behind since the very start. And so we see some delays in testing results from that. We've also seen periods of time where the supplies that are necessary for testing have been backordered and out of stock. And so that's been another big holdup too. Those things are starting to resolve and we are beginning to see some better handling of at least having the supplies necessary and the reagents necessary to do the testing. We are not necessarily seeing better handling of the data collection. (laughs) So that has been a struggle that we continue to struggle with. There are other ways to get tested too. So many people have probably heard of the rapid COVID tests. So there are several urgent cares in particular that are running the rapid test. This test, if you test positive on it, you probably are positive. So a positive is a pretty good result. A negative is not quite as for sure. So if you test negative on it, if you still suspect that you could have it, you should probably get a PCR to double check. But the positive with these rapid tests is that the turnaround time is so fast. It's really a bed, we call it bedside test. So it's in-house right there. It takes about 15 minutes to run. You don't have to do a PCR with it. It's just looking for what we call is it's an antigen capture test. So it's looking for a piece of that virus that will allow us to say it's there. And so sometimes for those in the science world, a lot of these are ELISAs. There's also an RNA test that looks for little bits of RNA using a DNA probe. So again, not a PCR, but a way to rapidly detect a piece of that virus. And so those rapid tests, none of these are really validated completely. They have some sort of emergency certification. Most of them do. It just takes a lot of time to validate these tests and we don't have that time, but we are getting results back from these that have been really positive as far as its ability to pick up on positives truly being positives. We also have several locations that are collecting saliva as opposed to doing the uncomfortable swab up your nose. Those saliva collection tests are also looking really great. And so the results are looking good with those too. So those are two great avenues for testing. We have the swab pod we have right here at OSU at the University Services Health Clinic here. And so a lot of people will do that kind of testing. There's also serology tests. And so you may hear about an antibody test as well. And the antibody test is not actually looking for an active infection. It's looking for previous exposure and infection to the virus. And so it takes 
a while to develop an immune antibody response to an infection. And so when we test positive on an antibody test, it really doesn't mean much as an individual. We don't really know exactly what that means as far as protection. It can help when we look as a population as a whole, if we want to get a feel for how many people have been exposed and where we're at in herd immunity and what's been going on. There's a lot of potential just from an epidemiology standpoint in antibody tests. But as far as an individual response goes, it's not going to be as important. So the antibodies, if I understand this, it's like you were, we were talking earlier about how the virus mutates. It's like you can get the flu and then get it again the following year, but you're unlikely to get it again a month later because you have those antibodies. But by the following year, it's mutated so much that your antibodies are not really effective anymore. Is that right? So that's with influenza. Our hope is that coronavirus will be different, right? But it's too early for us to know for sure. It is. Now, precedent tells us that the coronavirus is not going to mutate at the same rate as influenza. And Mm. so we can look back on, for example, all the other coronaviruses that we see in vet med. We can look back on previous coronavirus outbreaks in people and see that we have a better chance of getting this to a manageable long-term goal. We are still figuring out just how our immunity works for this. So there's a couple ways we can gain immunity to this virus through antibodies and then also through our T-cell response. And T-cells are one of our white blood cells. And they're really, really important when we talk about viruses. Viruses have to be inside of a cell to replicate and and infect others. And when they're inside of that cell, it's our T-cell response that really drives our immune response. We're still figuring this out. So yes, there is some research that says that the antibody response may not be great post-infection and that potentially even six to eight weeks after infection, the antibodies have diminished down which isn't terribly promising moving into the fall, right? Because we would have liked to have seen that last a little bit longer. On the encouraging side, I don't think we're saying the same thing about the T-cell response yet. And so that's still a big potential for our own protection and our own immunity that we are trying to figure out. And then on an even more optimistic side, the vaccine research that's been coming out is showing a much stronger and much longer lasting immune response with both antibodies and T-cells. And so the vaccine, again, may be our real magic bullet at the end here. So whenever, seems like whenever anything happens in the world now, there are many, many conspiracy theories. And with this one, there are definitely some conspiracy theories people are talking about. This being a man-made virus, Bill Gates being involved somehow, cell phone towers being involved somehow. Any thoughts on any of that? I mean, as far as the Bill Gates and the whole, what is it, like 5G Yes, yes. I mean, I seriously thought those were like satire posts until I found people that do believe that. And so I don't know that I can speak a lot to those particular conspiracy theories other than they entertain me. I do think that the man-made virus is a good one to speak to because that's a really important diplomacy topic, right? So it's very easy when, when bad things happen worldwide, we want to be able to point the finger at someone. We want to pass some blame on to someone. And there were lots of conspiracies floating around of this being a man-made virus. Post-SARS outbreak, early 2000s, did this emerge from a lab? Did China create this virus? I've seen that one. You know, there's a whole lot of conspiracy theory around that. So we're still figuring out origin of the virus. And I know there are a lot of scientists that are looking into that. 
So there is absolutely no sequencing or research to back up that this was created in a lab or mount man-made. In fact, the research just really backs up the origin from the bat coronaviruses with a likely intermediate host through a wildlife reservoir, whether that's through packs of stray dogs or pangolins or some other means, we are still figuring that out. But there's just absolutely no credibility to the statement that this is a man-made virus in a lab based on the research that we currently have. So we'll figure out more about this moving forward, but that should at least debunk or put that on a back burner for a while. But this is not the same as the flu, right? No, this is not. So COVID in particular in our vulnerable populations is much more severe. Hospitalization Mm -hmm. rates, death rates, the fatality in these vulnerable populations is really worrisome and troubling. So that's not to say that influenza isn't a major problem almost every year. It is. And we've talked about how it mutates and changes and why that's the case and why it's not going anywhere until we have maybe a universal vaccine that can finally keep this under control. But this year in this pandemic, COVID is significantly worse than influenza. In fact, it's kind of outcompeted influenza on a lot of fronts. When we start to actually just compare the viruses Coronaviruses are kind of viruses looking for a disease. They're not as scary as influenza viruses. So I get it. I get when people look at this, they want to put them on the same level or even put COVID below and say it's just like a cold because in a lot of people it is like a cold, right? Mm -hmm. We've talked about the significance of asymptomatic spread and mild disease and how for a significant number of people who are infected, they're not going to get that sick. They're not going to end up in a hospital. That's true for influenza too. But what we see are going to be these vulnerable populations who end up in a hospital and on a ventilator with higher fatality. We also see really high infectivity. The rate of transmission from human to human is really high with COVID. And we have a completely naive population. So we've literally never seen this virus before. It didn't exist before probably December, maybe late November last year, but no earlier than that. And so there is nobody that has protection against this, which is a big part of why it's so bad right now. Moving forward, if we were to move, once we finally get the pandemic gone and we have this maybe circulating as a more seasonal virus, maybe it's on par with flu or even a little bit lower. It could Mm. get there. But right now, there's really no comparison. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I know I was looking at them early on and it did look like the mortality rate, fatality rate for this is something like 10 times as high as the average year of the flu. It's really too early to compare those numbers because we're not going to know a mortality rate until we're past the pandemic, really. Mm -hmm. And we're also going to see that mortality rate differ significantly based on who's infected. And so, for example, the fatality rate was probably higher earlier on in the pandemic, partly because we were only testing people who were clinical, right? Mm -hmm. And so if they're clinical for the disease, they're more likely to have severe disease, hospitalization, and death from it. And we were also seeing us have vulnerable populations that were hit really hard because we didn't understand it yet. Now, as we shift into the summer, we have large populations of younger, healthier people who are getting infected. And so naturally, the mortality rates are going to drop down 
as we see more people who aren't going to end up in the hospital that are infected, and we see increases in testing to try and pick up on some of these asymptomatic carriers so that we can appropriately contact trace and isolate and hopefully put up that barrier that we've been talking about to control the outbreak. So mortality rates as a whole, we're not going to know them for a long time. Mortality rates, when we talk about individual populations, we're starting to get there. Mortality rate in our elderly is really high. And again, when we move down to children, particular in the 5 to 12-year-old type range, it's really low. And so we'll see that gradient as we move up towards the elderly who are more likely to have other diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and some of those other comorbidities, as we call them, Mm -hmm. are diseases that will worsen that viral infection and make it more likely that they end up in the hospital. I'd like to thank Jennifer for joining me. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please email us at pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. And with that, we'll end with our favorite final question. How do the arts and sciences make the world a better place? We've been talking a lot about how science makes the world a better place. In some ways, I feel like this entire discussion has been a clear example of how science makes the world a better place. So I'm actually going to switch gears for a second there because I am married to the other side of arts and sciences. I am married to a graphic designer and an illustrator is also an OSU grad. And, and uh, he's very talented, I can, I can tell you. He is. He's incredibly talented. And so I think I just really want to speak for the arts mm. right now, because when this pandemic started, we were thrown into a shutdown where we were quickly defined as essential or non-essential. Mm-hmm. And in general, it seemed to be that a lot of the fields that were quote, essential, unquote, were were scientific fields. Lab technicians, frontline workers, you know, nurses, doctors, all incredibly important. But life was not meant to be lived this way, right? Life was meant to be lived with the arts. And so going to concerts, I miss the McKnight Center. I miss the art museums. I miss art. And I have realized more than ever how much art is the difference between surviving and thriving Mm. in the life that we're given. And so, you know, we're pushing through to a finish here. And I hope that one of the things we get out of this is how truly essential art actually is to our lives and to our basic humanity. And so that's what I want to bring up, because I think The world is made better through our artists, through our creative forms, for each of us personally, in whatever way that may be. And that is probably what I miss most and what I'm most looking forward to as we hopefully get this behind us. 